0: Hey, what's going on? It's Jeremiah Zimmerman. It is Monday, May 13th, 2019. Today, we're doing something a little bit different on the podcast. Today, we are looking back at two conversations that I have had with master musician, William Parker. Easily, hands down, without question, one of the most popular episodes in the history of this podcast has been episode 35, which was when I first interviewed William Parker back in August of 2013. Over the years, uh, I have gotten people telling me that they've listened to that one four and five times, that they've learned so much from it, and I, it, it's without question one of my favorite episodes. Uh, the show ended in 2015, as many of you know, and that same year, I was invited to interview William again for Nate Woolley's Sound American. Uh, they were doing a special issue on William uh, excuse me, on Don Cherry, and in my original conversation with William Parker, we discussed uh, William's interaction with Don Cherry quite a bit. So Nate asked that I follow up with William and have a conversation specifically about Don Cherry. So today, I am including both of those conversations. First up, we're going to hear my original conversation with William Parker from 2013. And immediately afterwards, you will hear my conversation from 2015, which I don't know how many of you heard uh, that we did for Sound American. So first things first, thank you, Nate. Thank you, Sound American, for the the original opportunity, but for also letting me uh, use it here again. And if you guys are into what you hear today, I just want to say that Vision Festival is coming up soon. Uh, It's less than a month away. It's happening at Roulette. And since 1996, William Parker and Patricia Nicholson Parker have been doing an incredible job of creating this this concert series that happens every year in New York. And it's, you know, without question, one of the great festivals in the world. Go to artsforart.org to see the full lineup. It starts June 11th. Uh, I just interviewed Melvin Gibbs a couple days ago, specifically uh, for his upcoming appearance at the Vision Festival. Um, But I just want to say again, William Parker is one of the great characters in the history of music, in my my humble opinion. I said it in my first intro when we first uh, did this conversation years ago. He you know I, I run into William from time to time in the East Village. he's just wherever he goes, he brings this incredible light and energy to the place. Uh, I saw him last week at a concert and just you know saying hi and shaking hands for a minute. Y- you can't help but but feel like you're you know you're around somebody special. So first up, my conversation with William Parker from tele- from 2013, immediately afterwards, my conversation with William from September 2015. All right, hope you guys are doing well. Let's talk to William Parker. I remember years ago, I met you at The Stone, and you were telling me about back at the uh, old Waverly Theater on 6th Avenue. Right. That there was a basement there. Right. That you guys used to uh, jam in. Yeah,
1: yeah. And... um the musicians involved in that were basically the core of a group called the Music Ensemble, which consisted of Daniel Carter, and this is around 1973, 74, Uh. and Daniel Carter, uh, trumpet player Malik Baraka, who since left us, Dewey Johnson, trumpet player, Roger Baird, who was a drummer, Canadian drummer, living in in New York at the time. Um, who else was it? Earl Freeman, the bass player, mm-hmm. uh, used to stop by there, and that was basically the the core group of of uh, of that ensemble. And we would go over there. Maybe nine o'clock, ten o'clock after you know Studio Ribby or at night, ten o'clock at night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of the other places had sort of, you know, they had other groups playing there, and uh, we would we'd play until we wanted to stop, and that was part of the uh, uh, training of improvisation is to uh, improvise, which you really don't without any kind of theoretical guidelines except the sound itself telling you when to come in, when to come out, when to change pitch, Mm -hmm. when to change rhythm, when to come in with a melody, when to uh, abstract that melody, when to play a partial melody, Um, what happens when everyone's playing loud and you have the softest instrument, what do you do? Yes. Like Billy Bang. And what you do, you play harder, and 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 that's partly how Billy Bang developed his sound by playing with no amplifier with with drums. Yeah. So he had a, he had to project you had to project your sound rather than turn up. You know, I also played acoustic without without an amplifier in those days, and um, so you would learn a lot of things on the job training just by hours and hours was that, and hours
0: of playing did you feel like that was a really insular community of people developing a music together or were you guys all sort of out in in your own world doing different things and then coming back to this this room and bring in what well you would...
1: i was out doing different things and um i guess the other musicians were out also doing uh many many things in a day i mean i would be coming from uh bronx new york that's where, you, that's where you grew up. Yeah. yeah. And so I'd be coming down many times. I'd be walking down from the Bronx.
0: All the way down to West Village. Yeah, West Village. I'd go
1: across the 155th Street Bridgeway, Yankee Stadium. With the is. base. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd walk down 8th Avenue and uh, I'd be in Harlem and just walk on down and then walk east. And I'd usually start my day around 11 o'clock at a place called the Firehouse, which was an abandoned firehouse that. Uptown. Uh, No, no, downtown. Oh, okay. On 11th Street between Avenues B and C. Uh And where uh, saxophone player uh, Alan Glover, uh, we call him Juice, we still do, Uh had uh, taken over this firehouse from the city, and he was living there uh, with his family. And they had a piano there and speakers and a stage. And uh, we'd start playing at, oh... Ten o'clock, as early as possible. We start playing at ten o'clock, and I had learned about this place from a saxophone player from Chicago, a mudan slaughter, who had been playing around town. And we'd play maybe till about three or four o'clock, and i many musicians would stop by there. You know, I I met Andrew Hill there. Wow. Met in fact, you know, I met Andrew Hill, Billy Higgins, met them on the same day actually. Uh, Charles Brackeen, Frank Lowe, uh, Benny Wilson would stop by. There all kinds of musicians uh, from the most categorized musician Mm -hmm. as a bebop musician, uh, Kenny Durham, to a a musician who who would play
0: more adventurous music. uh, And so your days were really devoted to playing music with as many people as possible yeah. all day long.
1: Yeah, and then from there, around um, in the afternoon, I'd go over to Studio We, which was 119 Eldridge Street. Uh-huh. And over there, you, you know, you Dave Burrell, Archie Shep, Wilbur Ware. Daniel Carter was frequently, frequently, frequently mm-hmm. at Studio We. In fact, I learned about Studio We from, from Daniel Carter because he had his first group down at Studio We. He had a group with uh, Deidre... Johnson, who I guess he's called DJ Murray now, but the cello player was mm-hmm. in it. In, she had just gotten out of Manhattan School of Music. She was playing with Daniel and Hakeem Jami and a drummer named Napoleon Revelle and trumpet player John Marshall.
0: And how old were you
1: at this time? You were like uh, 20, 21.
0: So what happened before... Did, did at some point you made a decision, I'm going to devote my life to music and in order to, to do that, I need to be... Working on my stuff as much as possible, or did it somehow something snowballed naturally into this?
1: Well, I had been, um, <clears throat> I had made the decision that I, uh, an executive decision <laughs> from my executive <laughs> office inside myself there, <laughs> that I could make a contribution as a musician.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I would like to try. And uh so what is the first thing you do is is that the the music that that moved me was late Coltrane, Albert Ayler, Cecil Taylor, uh Archie Shepp, you know, Ornette Coleman, listening heavily to those musicians at the time and that music changed my life. You listened
0: to that stuff as a teenager?
1: Yeah. And so I wanted to jump into that arena and and play that particular music. Yeah. So uh I got a bass and I went up to the Jazzmobile Music School at first, up uh hundred thirty first street, and uh they had a, a stellar teaching staff. Uh mm-hmm. piano teacher was Roland Hanna, um drum teachers were up there were Warren Smith, oh, t- wow. Tony Williams, Freddie Waits. Oh, wow. Albert Tootie Heath. The brass teachers were Kenny Durham, Lee Morgan,
0: Jesus. Joe Newman, uh, Curtis Fuller, teaching trombone. And this was uh, a devoted music school? There was it sort of a community center? No, uh, uh,
1: it, was on, it was all day on Saturdays. Yeah. And at IS uh, 201, I think, uh, 131st Street, Park Avenue, and uh, Curtis Fuller, Benny Powell uh Richard Davis, Art Davis, Milt Hinton were the bass instructors. Paul West was the director of the program. Kenny uh Ted Dunbar, a guitar player, uh Jimmy Heath, Frank Foster. And when you
0: showed up, did you already know who these people were or they oh, were Oh yeah,
1: I knew who they were. Yeah. You know, cuz I had I had again good listening uh in traditional music, you know, as well you know listening to the first music i heard was when i was 5 6 years old was duke ellington your parents were, were... Well, my father was was very much into duke ellington yeah. in fact he was uh my first instrument i had was a trumpet and he was wanted us to my, my my brother and I to to join the Ellington band. That, that was, was his
0: that was his idea for you? Yeah, his. that was his dream. He wanted <laughs> to train us
1: because Duke Ellington was his was yeah. his idol. You know, he yeah. had a couple of heroes. My father he liked uh, Geronimo <laughs> and um, Sitting Bull, and uh-huh.
0: he liked Duke Ellington. <laughs> so he wanted you to be uh, an American Indian chief or uh, a, a musician. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And
1: uh so, so that was all part of the uh you know, so how do you become that? How do you yeah. become a musician? So you just you step into the step into the water and uh I, I've I've told this story many, many times. You know, I I got to the jazzmobile and there was no classroom, so Paul West put me in the bathroom and he had given me the, the chart to a, a tune called uh was it "Ain't misbehaving Oh, and uh, and gave me the. I keep saying ain't misbehaving. It was "Ain't misbehaving or, or or "Honeysuckle Rose." Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And although now I'm recalling it as "Honeysuckle Rose," and it was in. The, so he was teaching me the half position in the bass, and so school started at ten it ended around five o'clock, four o'clock. And so I'm in there doing this half position, just practicing, practicing, practicing. And uh, so I get a knock on the door. And so so the guy says, who's in there? So it's the janitor. And uh, the janitor says, oh, you know, it's like 7 o'clock. What are you doing in there? And I said, I'm (laughs) practicing. He says, well, you know, the school closed, you know, three hours ago. (laughs) And I said, luckily, I saw you in there. I mean, I heard you in there because I would have locked this building up. you have been locked <laughs> in for the weekend. So, <clears throat> so that was kind of my start. And then the next week, I was able to go to a regular classroom mm-hmm. with, uh, with Richard Davis. And, you know, we learned positions in the bass. And Richard Davis's idea was to, for you to learn as much about all kinds of music that, that you could. Sure. And because that's what he was doing. And so he uh, was saying, you know, whatever you do, if you're playing country and western, you're playing classical, you're playing, uh, he told us to show up on time. And he said, you know, even if you're playing with the worst band in the world, at the end of the gig, people will say, that band was the worst band in the world. But
0: that bass player was playing. So he was really sort of hammering in a sense of professionalism. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I, and I, and I was saying, but... Um, uh, Richard, what about, you know, what about Albert Isler and, and, and uh, what about oh, uh, Cecil Taylor? And uh, they said, no, 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 no.
0: <laughs> but he was saying, no, don't listen to them at all. No, he was just saying. check out this other it, stuff it, first. It, Get your fundamentals Well, no, they
1: didn't say that. They didn't say, well, William, learn this first and then you can learn that. They just said, no, 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 no,
0: no, <laughs> Well, I just want to ask you, as a teenager, hearing Albert Isler, for instance. Yeah. First of all, did you ever see him play? Mm. Okay. No. Well, I well, my experience with that music. I started listening to Eiler when I was, you know, nineteen or twenty, and I approached it from, I think, of probably a very different perspective th- than you did. But I didn't have my my I didn't have like a really deep emotional reaction to it uh, until a few listens. The first thing that got me about it was just the energy of it. Right. And then I began to hear something in it that this music uh, was having a real impact on me, and I was having a very deep emotional. Uh, Almost spiritual connection to it that I felt like it was healing me on some level. Right. And uh, as a teenager, was was that something that you were getting from it, or? Oh, of course. I mean
1: that that was that was the thing I was getting from all music. And and you you were
0: aware that that's what you were getting
1: from it. Well, I knew it was something. It wasn't until you know I really got into you know reading the liner notes of Love Supreme and about why Coltrane was playing. And that and that really locked it in for me. Why you play music? You play music to uh, to uplift and and enlighten uh, the people, the listener. And that and that's the reason—not to entertain them, right. you know, but to enlighten them. And and and, and what about music. you as a performer? Well, you as a performer, uh, you're also learning how to live. Yeah. When you every time you play, and and that's when I was beginning to get concepts of this thing called the tone world uh-huh. around that time. Yeah, and that really uh, you know developed through, throughout all, that whole period from seventy three to about seventy five. You know, in seventy three, when I was playing with uh, Jamil Moondock and Ensemble Muntu at Studio Ribby. We played there every Thursday, and I played with Charles Mm Burkeen, the melodic artet. I was playing with a group called Flight to Sanity, Harold Smith, and uh, Art Bennett. I played with the Aboriginal Music Society, Juma Sultan. Uh, I was playing with Walter Bishop Sr., Walter Bishop Jr.'s father. Uh And I was playing uh, sort of straight-ahead gigs with him. I was playing with the singer Maxine Sullivan. Mm-hmm. You take the high road; I take the low road. And a pianist named Dill Jones. I was playing with all these people at the same time. Yeah. And um, you know, around 1975, I met Don Cherry, and I played with him at the Five Spot for a week. And I'd
0: imagine that was a big deal for you.
1: Well, yeah, because it, it, it. I, I got paid, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> That's also, yeah, I got paid, and um, and I also got to really. Get firsthand experience how that music was put together. But in 1974, I played with Cecil Taylor, mm. you see. And so I was beginning to get experience, you know, how that
0: music was put together. So before that, it had sort of been a mystery. Well,
1: it was, uh, yeah, it was like I didn't know how it was put together. You right. know, I knew that the way we, we, we in the Bronx, you know, we'd have our groups and, and how we put it together. And how we would um, we would not notate the music in traditional notation, but we didn't like s- see that someone else was doing it a different way. We just would notate it the way we notated it, and then we found out that you know that Cecil Taylor also notated differently, okay, and that Don Cherry didn't notate at all. Don Cherry would would sing things and play things from his head, and mm-hmm. you would pick it up, and then you'd have to remember it.
0: So was, that's how he did his stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. not, There was not ever any paper, uh-huh. never any paper. He had a, he had a, a musical memory that was just, uh, oh, I mean, he knew more tunes than, as they say, you could shake a stick at. <laughs> and, um, and he could segue. When we were doing that gig. We'd go from a monk tune to a Stevie wonder tune to an Ornette Coleman tune to, a, to Abdullah Ibrahim tune. It's all treated with the same, yeah, yeah, it was it was a folk you know folk tune and on that gig at the same time we you know we had Billy Higgins we had Ed Blackwell was on that gig and we had Roger Blank, he uh, had Frank Lowe playing tenor sax and bass sax, Sandy Bull was playing the oud, Hakeem Jamie was playing. It was around the time he had done he was about to do Brown Rice. Yeah, Hakeem Jamie was playing uh, tuba and bass. I was playing bass. Um and uh sailing fung was playing an instrument called the ching uh, uh, a string type zither uh-huh. and and so you know don would sing he, he you know he'd play the Mutant. and it was And this was like a week long engagement you said? Yeah, we play from Tuesday to Sunday. And then I learned something about trust because I had met don on on the corner of LaGuardia place. I was walking down the street and I was just had my, my my poetry there, and I was reading my poetry on the corner, and Don came up behind me playing the Dusangoni. and then so we spent the whole afternoon doing poetry and Dusangoni and then we walked up to the Chelsea Hotel where he was uh, living uh-huh. at the time, and we were talking about nothing but spirituality. Yeah. You know, and music and healing and the Dalai Lama uh-huh. and uh Tibet and uh-huh. uh and prayer and meditation. And that was the connection. Now now he he never heard me play a note on the bass. Right. You know, but he said come down and play with me next week at the Five Spot. Yeah. And, you know, and he's and, and so I didn't ask, well, you know, like well, you don't know what I sound like. I didn't say anything like that, but I said, "Okay, sure." You know, cuz I I felt that all my training from seventy-two to seventy-five. I mean, I—I I was my uh, chops were up. Yeah, you were. You could play. Uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, my chops were 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 up. You know, I can say that without any kind of. Um, that's what it was. You know, yeah, that's yeah. what it was. And so I was able to um, join the, you know, join the band and and play.
0: You were confident in in that you were that it was okay for you to be there
1: oh yeah oh yeah okay. I, mean,
0: I, I had listened to all the,
1: the music and the, i mean the music of this was like a dream come true to actually play with some guys and that prior week. to
0: that don had been an important guy in your life because you've been listening to ornette and you've yeah. been listening to, yeah. to eiler and, yeah and yeah. so
1: this was the closest you know i, I was i was getting close to um uh, to where i wanted to to be yeah and i had uh you know, previous to that, I'd been studying. You know, I I went from the Jazzmobile down to study with Jimmy Garrison. Yeah. And, um, you know, he put an ad in the Village Voice, you know, bass lessons, $18. And so I never had any money in those days, but somehow I got $18. I went to, <laughs> he's living on Western Avenue and he has you know, little kids there. His son and daughter, his daughter was older. She was walking, running around. His son was crawling around, uh-huh. and um, and so he he, he taught me. You know, we went through this book, this Mandel book of of uh, Fred Zimmerman's book, and uh, but again, it was about the lesson was from one to two. But I didn't leave there till. Three, four o'clock, because then we would always talk about music. And, you know, he take me to Timothy uh, Marquin's loft on 72nd Street with Beaver Harris, or over, you know, where uh, this guy William Kunstler, you know, uh, was up there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, again, it was uh, hanging out. So I think I paid for one lesson, and um, but then the rest, I didn't, you know, he, 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 he sort of.
0: He took you under his wing, huh?
1: Well, yeah, as much as I wanted to to, to come under his wing, yeah. but, but the fires were building. inside. Well, I,
0: w- I want to go back to something you said about trust uh, and something in my own experience that kind of mirrors that a little bit is that um, like right now I'm writing a bunch of music and I immediately think I want this music to be played by my friends. So I look at the violin. I don't want a violinist. I want my friend. Here to play this part, right? Right. And I feel like the friends that bring me in on stuff, they don't want a clarinetist; they want me to play clarinet, right? And and, and is that sort of what that was, or?
1: Well, it was like when you meet some, you know, it, it's it's part of your uh, what I call your destiny line. Destiny line. Yes. Yeah. And everyone's got a destiny line where you walk down Seventh Street. And you run into Andrew Hill. Mm -hmm. And you start talking to Andrew Hill and and then you have a a good communication and a good connection with Andrew Hill. And if you'd have walked down eighth street, you wouldn't have run into him. Right. Or or like or or you or you meet someone at a particular time in your life that perhaps you needed to meet. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, you don't you, most of the time you don't know wh- why, you, why you, you, you you meet people at a particular time, but they, but you get the feeling that, that you can just see they have that sparkle mm-hmm. and that glow in their eyes and um, and you can kind of tell if somebody can play. Yes. Or not, you know, you, you 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 can sort of look at their environment and see what they're into, and when you talk to them, and so you seem to run into at least with me, I I always have run into the right people at the right time because most of my, tra- you know, part of my initial training was at the firehouse playing with the Juice Quartet, and that mm-hmm. was a, a Alan Glover, tenor saxophone, Cassandra piano, uh, Phil King, drums. And later on, um, Abu Kali on
0: drums, and then Ali Aboui. I think I think a really important part of yeah. of this 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 idea though is that those moments are all around us, and a lot of it depends on a person being able to have the ability to see magic and see things uh, as special.
1: Well, you know something. See, people think that. It is, but why do you have the ability to see? Which is more important than having the ability to see is understanding why. Right, and that why is like, okay, let's take this guy. You know, let, let let's put to put him through the machine. Okay, he's got bones are the same as his mm-hmm. his, uh, his organs are the same, but why does this guy have a glow? And this guy same structure but he's got a glow but his glow is different yeah and you see that everybody's got some kind of glow yeah and and it's not even you know it's like it's just something just like people can can listen to music and tell you to all the pictures that are there uh-huh. and tell you what chord this is it's just it's you know part of being recognizing these things is i think is a gift i agree and everyone has a gift except certain people Accept the gift, and certain people don't know. Don't never open their present, <laughs> and and yeah. so people have. Everyone's got presents just stored up that they got to open up. They you know from childhood they haven't opened yeah. up their presents from the womb. Yeah, yeah, and so so uh, there's no such thing you know, like saying, "Well, he's special," and he's no, no. I think we're all special. Mm-hmm. It's just that those who were able to recognize that and and sometimes it's not even like uh, i i could recognize i was no you don't recognize anything you just happen to be able to say curiosity opened this present up you 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 saw this you you you, you felt this and you went to it because you were destined to do that at yeah. that particular time well and then this person this other person said well you know he could be late into his 50s and 60s And then for 10 years, from 60 to 70, play the most beautiful music that ever was. Yeah. And that's what he was supposed to do. Or at other times, you say, well, you know, I had, you know, on July 13th, 2012, I played the most beautiful solo and then somebody in that room that you while you were playing that solo. They needed to hear what you yes. were playing at that particular time in their life. Yes. And that music changed their life. Might have saved their life. And you've completed your assignment. You yeah. see, and that could be—you know—I mean, we don't know about this. And you said, "Well, well, am I going to play something? Uh, am I going to play something more beautiful?" He said, "Well, I don't know, but <laughs> but on that day you played the most beautiful music in the world." And that and and that was and you were supposed to do that, this these this person was supposed to listen to it. And then you don't even know that this has happened until maybe 10 years after that. And somebody says, hey, remember when uh, you played that played up in uh, in, you know, in so and so, uh, uh, Missouri, in that little room. Yeah, I was I was yeah, well I was there, man. That music changed my life. Yeah. You know. And and so you don't even know I've
0: you, I've been on I've been on that side. I've been the guy yeah. that heard something one night and it was exactly what I needed to keep me from falling over the edge.
2: Yeah. And, and I at, said
0: to people before, I said, Man, that show at the stone that night, like really, really had an impact on me. Yeah. Oh, I don't even remember that show. Yeah, and well, you know, a <laughs> musician
1: might not even yeah. remember so so you never know. The impact of what you're doing, you can't judge by how many people are there. You can't, you you know, people are saying, well, I don't ever get reviews or we don't, you know, we're on a low economic base. Uh, Yeah. And that's true, but it's
0: really not about that. That's a different conversation.
1: Yeah. And it's about, you know, playing the music on a highest level that you can play it on every time you play it and uh, and that's that's what you're supposed to. And
0: do. that's sort of where you can enter into the scenario conscientiously is you I mean, it sounds like very early on, you decided you you locked in and said, "I'm going to play the bass." and you started playing the bass as much as you could with as many people as you can. And to take that approach, which is you're you know to, to be aware of of this magic that is possible, but in sort of the the day to day, to practice the bass, to do it from a place, uh, a, a position of clarity, and and good intentions, is how you can be ready to 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 lock in with those magical moments.
1: Yeah, and not really want to. It's a concept of not really trying to control the music but right. get the, the idea and and this is something you learn early on because you you sometimes you 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 go to a, a famous musician and the guys played the most beautiful ballad in the world. Yeah. Or and and then you go up to him and you say, Hey, Mr. So and so, you know, uh man, I'm I'm your biggest fan. Can I can I have your autograph? And he says to you, Get lost. Get out of my face. <laughs> you know <Did laughs> I <have> it, you, <laughs> got, you got you <laughs> give me twenty bucks or something, you know. They <laughs> want to borrow some money for it. You know, and so so then you, you you the first thing you do is you you don't get you don't get mad. You say, Wow, you know what ha It must be uh, the idea uh which I studied when I was studying uh Plato and Socrates, which is that there's one of the dialogues is 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 called ion, and they talk about virtue and and divinity and whether uh, whether rather virtue whether it's something that you are born with or something you can learn mm-hmm. and uh they 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 talk about this and they jiggle back and forth and they say. And he and comes up with this idea about the, the kinetic rings and magnetism, the magnetic flow. And that when people play music, it comes, it has nothing to do with your personality, how big your feet are or anything like that. Because when you play music, you step, you know, you're, you're stepping into another plane yeah. and the music flows through you. And and the and it could be you know beautiful music, mm-hmm. strong music, mm-hmm. and some people are connected with like you know like Don Cherry was always a bright person, talked to you all day, and you know never you know like always friendly, and other people weren't so friendly, but their music was strong, mm-hmm. and so they they maybe their challenge was to bring their life up to where their music was, yeah. You see? That's a that's a big one. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, simply because of you know public relations, you know, it's like the, the, a lot of people. Are, uh, you know, the greatest musicians, a lot of them are depressed. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are you know have self-destructive. Pers- yeah, you know, there's a I mean, in reality. A lot of that is going on. You you know, a, a lot of people may be bipolar, who we don't know are bipolar. Yeah, you know, undiagnosed. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, like like why did this guy act so strange? You know, all the time. And But when he plays music, it comes through. Um, so there's a lot of that happening where the, you don't really try to control the music. The music comes through you, and you train yourself not to interfere. You say, when you see this flow coming, you train yourself to not say, I'm going to try to, uh, this, this note is not resolving or this isn't resolving. Uh, you come up with the idea that It doesn't have to resolve you know human Mm -hmm. beings are the most you know i mean something beautiful is the most resolved thing but it resolves itself in a illogical way Mm -hmm. and and uh and the most beautiful things are all illogical you know i mean a miracle is is very
0: illogical you didn't see that coming (laughs) yeah
1: and so and so you know and music is a miracle so all of these things you have to you have to retrain your mindset to not worry about uh, the uh, the so-called placement of of your you know of fitting your mu of interfering with your musical training right. interfering with creativity imposing
0: something on to something that's happening naturally yeah. Yeah. i you know I, I mean i feel like every few years i sort of uh well, no, I, recently, in the last couple of years, I feel like I've had some real musical breakthroughs. And without question, a big part of it for me it was a couple of things. One was uh, really sort of integrating a regular meditation practice. Two, it was not questioning the sound of my own voice. And, and just really like shutting that part of my, uh, that voice inside my head up while I was playing music to just be present for what was happening. And... Because for the longest time I would hear music happening around me and I would hear what I was playing as something separate from it And I would be really hard on the sound that I was making right. and I would feel like oh, this is everything's cool but this is the thing that's fucking everything up yeah. Yeah. and That is that that voice and I think that voice can come in many different sounds for different people but the big thing was was turning all of it off and just responding to what was happening musically and I can say objectively, uh, listening back to recordings and and just the feel of those musical situations, it's at a much better place when I can approach it that way.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's uh, if you look at the the earth as a drum, mm-hmm. or look at the um, uh, earth as a drum, you look at the the tree as a bass, <laughs> and, and, and you 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 look. At birds as trumpets that fly. Yeah. Okay. And um, and you look at, and you, so you see these other images and ideas that we're all part of this sound. Yeah. And it's all natural. You know, if, 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 if you took your clarinet and hung it from a tree and let the wind blow through it, what would it sound like? Right. You see, it wouldn't, I mean, you know, as, as great as Charlie Parker was, it would not sound like bebop. <laughs> you know yeah. and and you know if you took a drum set and place it in the top of trees and let the leaves blow across it you know what, what would those drums sound like yeah you know and it, it might sound like the, the way a kid sounds when a kid plays you know or it might you know so so these are all natural sounds that that even Charles Mingus said uh, once, you know, you have to learn all this stuff to get back to where you didn't know anything about music. And that's where you want to get to, the, to right. the point where you don't know anything about music and get into that kind of understanding rather than I know everything about music and like, but then so what? Right. Can can your music bring the dead back to life? <laughs> you say, Yeah. Okay. And the thing is that, well... um, no, it actually can't, <laughs> you know, but I know everything about music. And they say, well, you don't know everything about it. You think you know everything about music, mm-hmm. but you can't know everything about anything in life, you know, because it's always, I mean. Well, that's what makes it great, too. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we kind of uh, have a myopic view of teaching music in the sense that um, it's always about uh, European music System and why we pick that system when there's a whole world. You know, if you go Mm -hmm. to if you go to the Congo, if you go to other parts of Africa, you know they all. You know, you go to the uh, Philippines, the Korea, to Japan, you go to places unknown. There, everyone has their own system of of doing things with sound. Mm -hmm. So. There's no universal system. I mean, if 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 you had ten islands and you and had never heard of the the violin before, and, and you dropped violins in each of those islands, they would all come up with a different sound. Yeah. They would all hold them differently. They would all maybe figure out a, a different way of of playing. They might take them apart and put them back together a different way. So I mean, so there are many systems of music, and this is what you know. Sun Ra was talking about a lot. And being able to live with his band, and being able to really get outrageous. You see, you have to get out. You have to understand the validity of being outrageous. Oh yeah. Yeah, see, yeah yeah yeah. You see now, once you get outrageous, and you're getting closer to to closer to the roots of the earth, closer to the sky, closer to those sounds like. Uh, well, this is avant-garde, and, or uh, this is out, and you just say, "Well, I don't know. I've been, I, you know, I, I've been in this field, and I'm listening to those crickets. Those crickets are out. They, they must be out too. And the, the rain <laughs> hitting that that thatch roof must be out. Yeah. And and uh, you know, the the animal, the, the sound of the trees swaying in the wind and touching each other, that must be out. You know. So so like." Who calls the shots? This is in. This is out. Right. You know, it's like. Well, uh, I think that that people should all p- human beings should have education and food. Oh, well, you're liberal. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you know, you're liberal because you think that everyone should have food and 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 education. Yeah, that's that's liberal. You know, I mean, so who who you know like. Someone is is manipulating somebody here in this oh, world. Yeah, 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 yeah. there's you a know, lot of that
0: going around. Big everywhere <laughs> it starts with the family and it goes all the way up to big time. You <laughs> yeah. know, so it's like I mean, like
1: come on. So we have to begin to 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 think and feel for ourselves yeah. and, and make our own decisions of of what we think our tonic is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one of the things you, you I tell when I have students is that you can take uh the precise dictionary of, of music the harvard precise dictionary of music and look at every term in that dictionary and redefine it you say well it says harmony is this but for me harmony is this you know this is rhythm this is melody you know, this is you, 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 you define music to your needs. You know, nobody owns music mm-hmm. there, there and no music police. You can do what you want with it. Yeah. And you say, well, well, I think your music is, is, is you, you're doing what you want and no one's listening. And I think it's terrible. Then, uh, then, then so be it. But, uh, that's what you think. You see, I think that, that there are people that, this. you know, we all come from clans. And I think, um, you know, it's like the Hopi Indian. You have the Owl Clan, your Fox Clan, your Bear Clan. And uh, you maybe come from the, from the Whisper Clan. He said, "This guy, all this guy does is play at a whisper." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I know. But then you got to find the whisper people who that music is made for, right? You know. And then this guy, all he does is play loud. He plays loud at six in the morning, at noon, Monday, <laughs> Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He's gonna play loud. Because, well, but
0: you, I mean, as a <laughs> you, you, you've spent time with all these clients.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well was that I
0: mean was it was there an adjustment process for you to to figure out, you know, how you could maintain your voice and and, and really approach situations as honestly as possible, but also sort of uh, in a way that would be conducive and, and 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 in harmony with the way that all these different people play. Well,
1: even though we're clans, you know, it's like someone said once said um something that Saxon player James Lott told me. Now James Lott uh, I met in the seventies, and he was telling me a story uh you know he drove Coltrane train to Indiana to buy a saxophone from new york yeah and time. and he said when the train came back, he practiced all the way back to New York, and they said you know like, and he spoke to Albert Isler once, and then they said well yeah Albert you know you, you you sound like Train, and and uh, and Pharaoh sounds like Train, and then and then Albert said, No, 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 no. You have it wrong. It's not that I sound like t- Train or Pharaoh sounds like me, and Train sounds like Pharaoh. It's that we all sound like a bigger saxophone player, <laughs> and we're all part of the, the whole thing. So no, no matter how many pieces, clans we're divided into, when you put it all together, mm-hmm. it's a whole unity there. You see, so uh, when I when I in 1981, I met in uh, 1980, I met uh, a bass player from Germany, Peter Koval. Oh yeah, and and he was walking down Avenue B, and I said, "You Peter Koval. and he said, "Yeah, you know me." I said, "Yeah." So and then we started talking, and he came over to my house. We spent the afternoon together and started, you know, playing the du, du- duets, and and we became you know friends. You know, Uncle Petey and Brother Bill. That's what our nicknames were. <laughs> and um, so he invited me to come to Europe to play at an FMP. As a duo, the two of you? Well, you know, the FMP festival was set up thusly. You know, you you inv- you'd invite like Evan Parker from England, mm-hmm. Louis Glavis from France, Enrico Rava from Italy, Peter the German musicians Peter Brotzmann, Paul Lovens, Han Binnick from Germany, uh-huh. from uh, Holland. Uh-huh. And you'd have maybe 13 musicians. We had Diamand Gallus was oh, wow. there. We had the Ganelin Trio was there. Tony Oxley. Yeah. Um, Connie Bauer, uh, Johannes Bauer. And so you have these maybe 13 musicians, and they all kind of knew each other because they have been playing together. I mean, that was a European idea of improvisation is they didn't use any written music and they didn't use any preset thought. They would just come together and do an improvisation. And that developed into a concept which was eventually called European improvisation. Mm -hmm. So I got there and it was just like, okay, uh, Toshinori Kondo was there, so uh, I do a duo with Kondo. And then let's have a trio with, you know, Diamanda Gallis and and Evan Parker and Connie Bauer. Or let's have a a quartet with Tony Oxley and Han Bennett. So that's how I was, that that situation I was put into. And I had no problem adapting to, to again, it had to do with being able to, uh, my senses were trained to respond to sound, any kind of sound. And, and make adjustments. When I first played with Derek Bailey, you know, I mean, I, I said to myself, man, what, this, what is this guy playing? I, mean, <laughs> I want to hear some Westmont Montgomery. We're going gonna to play some blues, you know? Right, right, right. You know, because I was based off of the blues. But after about five minutes, I said, okay, I know, I know what's going on. And, 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 and this is just an afterthought, but after five minutes, I realized that we could play together by... Being parallel to each other mm-hmm. and staying in our own worlds, and then from time to time crossing, crossing, uh, you know, uh, this road here. So uh, you you adapt you, you you know in seconds to like it's almost like a you know uh, uh, you, you you're one ten volts. You you immediately switch over to two twenty 220 220, immediately, yeah. or you or you just usually. Put in your filters and adapt to how people are playing, and you listen.
0: Right. When I found myself in that situation, kind of, you know, it it wasn't always like this. But like a breakthrough for me was, I would, I would be playing with someone where I would just not know where the hell they were coming from, and I would have a thought like that, like, when are they going to do something that I can grab, you know? And then after a few minutes, I would think to myself, well, if I can't play music with somebody without that explicit, you know, invitation to my comfort. You know, then that's a problem for me, not them. Let me see how I can come yeah, to them. Yeah.
1: Because it was a different concept. It was yeah. a different concept of playing that not all Americans, but that I, you know, I mean, we, we were coming out of a school of energy music. Yeah. You know, Peter Brotzman. Yeah. yeah uh, but yeah, even yeah. their idea of energy music was, of course, different than ours. Mm-hmm. We, we, we were jazz-based because that's what we listened to. Uh, the, the, the records coming over from, you know, we listened to the AACM uh and that was different for us yeah. you know so what we had to eventually adapt and learn that and open up you know that there are all kinds of uh, I mean we thought there were just many schools within our school but realize that there are, there are many schools outside of our school that have different concepts of of, of music, just the idea of space. See, we mm. never use space in our music. <laughs> you know, we never like hit a bell and then had silence. Right. You know, I said, man, silence? What's silence? <laughs> Give me a, well, come on, let's go. You know, Frank Wright, come on, Frank. You yeah, know, yeah, the, the yeah. rev. You know, we want to yeah. play. We want to blow. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, but I had to learn, you know, I'm playing with you that, is, is that space is a sound. Yeah. And man. that silence is a sound. Now, 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 no one said, well, William, silence is a sound. I just learned this. You know, this stuff just came to me naturally that I was lucky enough to be able to understand these things naturally without being, you know, because it, it just felt right that, you know, that silence, you know, that there's space. You have clouds and then you have some space of blue. If you look at nature, you can see that silence. You can
0: hear that space. Mm-hmm. In there. Well, and it's certainly one of those things where, like, you play with someone like that, and then you come back to your guys, your community, and you're playing a little bit differently, and it, it, it's, it spreads. And it certainly can inform your own concept of sound in such a way that... Um, I heard someone say this the other day. Uh, 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 someone was talking about writers, you know, like, you know, authors. Right. And um, I think maybe it was Hemingway, he said something about the fire between the words. Right. You know, use right. little words and really make the, the space between them poetic. And I mean, absolutely, I can relate that to music. Right. And, and you can sort of punctuate and, and your sounds and, and add impact to them.
1: Right. Well, that's the equality. You know, you can have a symphony orchestra and you can have a guy sitting there playing a one-string fiddle. And the symphony orchestra plays, and everyone's oh, great concert. But then the guy with the one-string fiddle, is like, well, how are you going to follow? How are you going to you know come up right after that? All that sound, and the guy with the one-string fiddle can come up and, and just play softest music, and it can have the same intensity. Yeah. So it so so it it gave, gave showed me that it's not what you do; it's how you do it. You have to get inside the interior world of the sound. Mm-hmm. And once you're inside that world, once you, you, you go inside the world and become one with the sound, then you can do anything. But you have to know how to become one with sound. And that's and that's what would make your compositions work as well. If you're writing compositions, Is you have to be able to get the musicians to become one with, was the sound so mm-hmm. that the composition is is a living thing mm-hmm. and not just reading or interpreting a part, but they're one with the sound. Yeah. And 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 this of course can be done by the more you play with somebody. I mean if you've got a good rapport playing with someone the first time, so you only can get better but you have to really play with them. Yeah. I mean I, I like like the first time I played with Billy Bang, we had um Immediate rapport. It was like it was like I've been playing with him all my life, yeah. and it all and 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 we could not play for ten years and then play and it was just like we left off where we right. where, where we were. Him I I never had a problem with, uh, and then other people you know you have to adapt. You said, what is this guy playing now? You know it's all it, it can be more of a challenge, mm-hmm. and then you're not sure whether it, whether it works or not. Uh, and you don't have to be sure. Right. You know, you just have to play and do what you do because it's... it's.
0: But in those days at the uh, in the basement below the Waverly Theater and over at the Firehouse where you guys were playing for a long time, working on stuff together, would you uh, get on and then discuss what you had played and talk about what worked and what didn't work? Or was it...
1: Not really. We would say, okay, let's try this. You know, let's try to play the uh this tune in all the keys oh let's try to play the 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 uh go from one key to the other but don't tell each other which key we're going into right right right. you know or so things like that but we would never really discuss it because there was a fear of uh always always had a fear of uh of mysteries and a fear of mysteries yeah in the sense that I didn't want to get close, too close to the sun. I didn't want to look at the sun right. directly. I wanted to, uh, because I felt that it was sometimes it was so beautiful, the music that I wanted to just kind of stay back a few steps from it, and not know what it's made out of and not dissect it because I didn't want to lose it. And then later on, I found out you can dissect. Uh, as much as you want you'll never find out exactly what's in it <laughs> right that it's always a step ahead of you yeah 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 yeah. always a step ahead of you and uh it just it goes on and on and on and on and, and the more you know the more you don't know and then the more you know the more you 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 find that you didn't need what you know you didn't even need to know
0: <laughs> <laughs> i saw this quote the other day that said uh Oh, god i'm really bad to remember who said what today but it was the quote was i'm not young enough to know everything and and definitely the older you get the more you realize you don't know shit yeah
1: and then you also to, to know that you don't need to know yeah you know you don't need to know uh you know because I've, I've been doing this for years i you know i'm saying you know well you know that uh we are naming flowers but they're not the real names of the flowers yeah that we flower a, might disagree with you we 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 call a rose a rose but you know it's not the real name of the rose we and we we don't know what the rose is really called because we don't speak the flower language yeah you know we 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 we, we you know we call this so i mean there are all kinds of ways of, of looking at this but we have to you know again develop what we think is important for us and in uh was it was in the music. So it was all wonderful to me. And so I, I I went over to Europe and was putting put in all of these different playing situations and then you realize that uh you know, Evan Parker's totally different than Peter Brutzman Oh yeah. and and, you know, Han Binnick is totally different than Tony Oxley uh-huh. and Paul Lovens. And everyone had a different way of playing. Louis Maholo was a whole nother thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, we did a uh, we did a movie with uh, Cecil Taylor, and myself and Louis Maholo. Uh, the movie was actually about South African exiles, and we played like a set for i played for almost two hours straight, and and it was like really is one of the, I still remember the set. You know, so it was it was, it was really a special one. It was a special one and you really got to know and then you know i spent a lot of time with Lewis. we were roommates and in, in munich we went to munich to do our you pro- lived, oh oh you mean a, yeah, yeah a project for okay two, for two weeks okay and was a was a german uh, trombone player and ended up recording every day and and actually just, none of it's come out yet actually how long ago was that oh that was in the in the 90s okay and uh so you you get to know people, and sometimes you get to know people you know a little better than other people, but uh it's all wonderful it's all you know it's all wonderful, and then knowing what you what your role is within the larger music community yeah and 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 how you fit in because then you you know because then you're you're playing this, but then you you have Milford graves mm-hmm. You know, which is a which is a whole you know again a whole nother entity as far as drumming and 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 the way he lives and his life and and what he has to offer as a human being and as a musician. So so everyone was different, you know. And, and was,
0: did that time? Did you um? Do you still have a lot of uh, musical relationships with those people in Europe, or was that sort of a specific time and place? Well,
1: for, from the eight, for about. From 1980 till about 1993, about 13 years, we went over to for FMP yeah. and toured Europe and you know playing playing with all the different musicians. In 1988, Berlin was the uh, cultural city of Europe. That's where uh, FMP put out a tin box set thing with Cecil Taylor, yeah. and uh, so it was it was just. Wonderful, wonderful
0: music that was that was going down. And did it feel good to have to be able to come over from New York and present what you guys have been working oh, on? Oh, it felt great. Yeah. So it was really
1: great. You know, I, I met all the the uh, musicians and. Uh, in the music, you know, and in in when I say the music, you know, that is associated with the avant-garde or free music or creative yeah. music, whatever you want to call it, from Europe. I I play with, with most of them yeah. and, and in some capacity or another, at least once or twice. And I, and I knew, knew all of them. I remember, you know, I'd, I'd come back to New York and, you know, talk to Steve McCall. And he, him and Marion Brown were living uptown in Harlem. Yeah. And Steve would, would cook, and Marion would be painting at the time, you know, <laughs> and just go hang out with them for a day. And uh, early on in the 70s, you know, I would uh, go over to Marzette Watts' house. And we uh, was hanging out with Rashid Ali, and we'd go over there, and then and, and Marzette was recording a lot of the music at Studio We and Studio Ruby at the time. And so I I, uh, I got to meet, you know, one of the first musicians I met was it was was before I met Richard Davis, was Charlie Hayden, mm-hmm. and I met him uh, when I was like I was, it was a point where I was writing reviews of concerts, and he was playing with Carl Berger and Horace Horacio and. Mm-hmm. Carlos Ward at the public library, so I met him, and I spoke to, spoke to him about, I think, you know, I want to play the bass, and he would, he, you know, so he'd give me some advice about why I didn't even have a bass at that time, you know, what to do, and uh, so I got to know and really get a lot of information and, and ideas from people, and... Uh, and were you...
0: At the time, and were wonderful. you aware of how special this whole this whole time and place was?
1: Well, I'm be, you know I'm beginning to to realize that I was not aware of it. I was not aware of it. I mean, like now when I was, I was in Toronto last week and I played, and every time I get to play, not nowadays, I really appreciate it and really know how special it is to be able to 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 play music, mm-hmm. and uh, because I really think it's you know, if if I died a hundred times and I was able to come back a hundred times I'd come back as a musician. Yeah. And not and and in and, and, and in this world is is you know, is the where however out this world is right now, yeah. I like to come back to this world uh, because it's really, really, really uh, a wonderful gift to be able to, to to play music and to know that all of these musicians have existed and the ones who exist now that are doing quite wonderful music you know and that's um
0: you know everybody from it's part of like a continuum yeah and you know and just to respond to that the world's in a really bad place right now is what i feel yes and when you play music and you have this you know special moments where you sort of transcend and get lost and hypnotic and at least for those few minutes everyone in that room hopefully audience and musicians can have a really sincere and yeah. and and warm and 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 uh, honest experience with one another exactly yeah and i realized one time um i was playing a concert and and i just it was one of those moments where like i caught myself enjoying the hell out of it and then i had like shut myself up the guy that was catching me and saying let me just keep enjoying this and i realized that when you get lost in those moments and you're having that connection with other musicians and when you're having that connection with an audience it's the same feeling that every musician in history who's played concerts has had oh yeah and it makes me oh, feel yeah. closer to the music that i love oh yeah
1: oh yeah i mean you know i used to play at a a fish restaurant in in uh Jer- in, in jersey city with uh, Mark White, Cage, and Perry Robinson, mm. and uh, Joe Ruddick on piano, and Walter Perkins. That's why I was. That's why I met Walter Perkins, and Walter Perkins was uh, particularly. He's at the school of drummers like Scobie Strowman and Dennis Charles, mm. who had that mature sound, but they were very open to all kinds of music and all kinds of things. And had whereas uh, you know you could play anything with with, with Walter, and uh, really enjoyed um, there's a there's a you could, they enjoyed every aspect of being a musician. Yeah. From from day one till till till, till, you, know, till you know till you know till they couldn't play anymore. I mean uh, if 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 you check out uh, Perry Robinson. You know, I mean, just just a wonderful ears, wonderful musician can play any kind of mu- music. Mark White kid, there's so many of them. I mean, mm-hmm. I can say uh, for three hours and name wonderful sure. musicians who who uh, you know you may or may not heard you know it, it extensively, but who are are quite uh, wonderful musicians. And and this is just in New York, yeah. so you can ditto all of this power around the world, of all the musicians, and how the voice is being kept. And when you drive across America, you turn that radio on, you don't hear any of You don't any hear of any it. of it. <laughs> you, know, you say, like, they. this is, what is this, a conspiracy to silence this music? Yeah. And I think it is because the, the music and all art has one effect on people. It eventually causes people to think. They don't want that. To feel. They don't want that. To be intuitive. And they don't once want that happens... You know the covers, of that. the covers will be pulled. Yeah. And, you know, and all of this. You know, you you know will, and, and that's when things, uh, that's where a real revolution will begin to to uh, to take place. You know, and, and in the meantime, you know, we're we're reaching one person at a time and changing lives through music because most people who all the people you know ninety nine percent of the people who, who listen to this music, and I'll go out on a limb and say that who really get into the music, you know, are politically correct, are environmentally correct, are trying to do to to spread all of these ideals through their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the beginning of 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 change. Yeah. You know, where where things change and and move forward, you know. But you always how can you not like think about, it? you know, you you just drove from New York to California and you didn't hear one Second of the music that of of improvised music you know uh, uh, it's always on the left side in the college station, so yeah. it's like come on, you know it's like um, it's you know what is this about and and what it's about is that it's a conscious effort you know i mean it's a conscious effort to to the same way you know the, the dumb down things i mean
0: um you know people so how how do you respond to it personally?
1: Well, you know, you you participate in some political uh, gestures outside of music that, uh, fi- and you find that you can through some things, not just playing music, but through how you present it and how you you know you you you're able to write about it, where mm-hmm. people can read about it. You're yeah. able to, I mean, that's one reason why I really got into being able to explain and talk about it on a, a higher level so that you can communicate what you need to communicate so people who don't understand certain things about your life can think about it and maybe they can, you know, something can snap inside of them where they can begin to, to see what you're seeing, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 uh, and not, you know, handcuffs these flowers
0: and well, and I'm curious though know. with with the Vision Festival, yeah. which you've been you and your wife have been doing for over 20 years now. Yes, yes. Now I to say you
1: know, uh, but Patricia's been doing. It. I'm I'm. She started it. Patricia Nixon Parker. Uh-huh. She started it, and people always think it's it's you know. They, I I I get attached to it through association i get more yeah i get more credit than she does but
0: my question is that given the the climate and the political social environment that you just described does moving forward with something like the vision festival feel like an act of opposition to that or does it feel more like like uh
1: well uh i i think that Well, one thing I know is that there should be a vision festival in every state. Damn straight. You know, and uh, why there isn't, I don't know. But there should be, you know, some, it should be a catalyst in each state, uh, people who want to present this music and there should be one in each state there should be this is new york in paris they have at least four or five major festivals mm-hmm. throughout the year there should be a winter festival a summer festival a, as many musicians in new york so I, I think that the 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 vision festival has been uh, politically a, a, a heavy stimulation for um uh, for action, for awareness, for bringing people together, for presenting the music, for uh, thinking about not just music but dance, poetry, art, all the arts, and with what l- limited resources that we have to be able to stay alive and do it for twenty years is is uh, you know quite an accomplishment. I mean, every people people who try to buy the Vision Festival you know yeah. yes 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 i mean who who, who 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 you know people who who you who are remain nameless but they sure. run the Newport Jazz Festival right. have come over and tried to buy the Vision Festival and, and and you know the same as when Michael Dorf had his uh knitting factory festivals uh the idea that well if you if you want to control something you co-opt it you know, you you, you buy it, yeah. and then uh, you can control it because it's competition. Rather than think, wow, well, you know, the Vision Festival services these people, I service these people, and then we need maybe two more festivals that'll serve. So that'll be a mixture of the two.
0: I mean, a beautiful situation would be like it's a Venn diagram, and there's overlap. Hopefully, did you did you did you. Uh... Did you play at the Knitting Factory much on Houston Street? Did you feel like you were... Well,
1: I was one of the... We were one of the first bands that played there. I remember when the Knitting Factory we were walking down Houston Street with Wayne Horvitz and uh, the guys said, Are you musicians? And I said, Yeah. And uh, they had uh, sawed us on the floor uh, and, <laughs> and so we came in there and we played. And uh, at that time in 1984, you know, with Peter Koval... Uh, we, organized a festival called the Sound Unity Festival, which was a European-American festival where uh, international festival, everyone played on that festival. You know, we had Bill Dixon, we had Jimmy Lyons, we had Charles Tyler, we had Frank Lowe, we had uh, Don Cherry, we had all kinds of musicians playing on that. Peter Peter Brodsman, Peter Koval, Charles Gale. And uh, in 1988, we duplicated the festival and we did it at a place. We one of the places we did it at was a knitting factory, and I went to Michael Dorf and I rented the knitting factory for thousand dollars. What year was this? Nineteen eighty eight. Okay. And I rented the knitting factory for thousand dollars for one week. Okay, you
0: got a whole week. Okay. Yeah, a
1: whole week, and we had Dewey Redman, Sonny Sharad, Milford Graves. We had a whole bunch of mu- musicians playing yeah. for the whole week, and right after that, and uh, Michael started the knitting factory festival he said you know he said wow this can be done mm-hmm. and then you know knitting fact knitting factory festival and they got a sponsor the next year it was heineken festival then texaco festival uh, yeah and then the uh yeah, yeah, yeah. was it verizon or bell atlantic, bell atlantic yeah. yeah and uh so a lot of the musicians played at the knitting factory because it was one of the places one of the places, to, the places. To play. And uh, until it you know it kind of died out. Mm-hmm. And um, you know now uh, you know we have the stone, we have roulette mm-hmm. but you know we, we we don't really you know there was a place in the 70s called the East, Ten Claver place, which Rahan Roland Kirk, Pharaoh Sanders wow. uh, Cecil Taylor played wow. there, wow. Yeah. Marvin, Hannibal Peters Peterson played it. All the musicians would play at the East. And um there's no place like that up in Harlem now or Brooklyn where that's more of a grassroots black community yeah. place that plays music. I mean, it's Sister's Place in Brooklyn. Sister's but, Place? Yeah. Uh, okay. Ahmed Abdullah has a place in okay. Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy, in Avenue, called Sister's Place, which has been doing doing that for, I think they've been doing it for, for almost 20 years, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And, but it's small. It's in the neighborhood. It's a small cafe. But we need more things like that. Yeah. We need more grassroots places because there are a lot of musicians in New York. So and, we and you're ate-
0: talking about, with emphasis on black music,
1: well, with emphasis on well, it's a black community, yeah. so emphasis on black musicians, and then places in Harlem that are em- emphasis on black musicians, but also all kinds of musicians. Yeah, you know. And uh, because the music is international now. It's yeah. just not, you know, it's not like black musicians. But again, you know, if you look at the audience, you know, the majority of the audiences in, in all of these events are white. Right. So the thing is that, so whereas the East, when it was open in the 70s, was like the Cotton Club reverse. It did not <laughs> allow white people in the East. Really? Yeah. So you had like 300, 400, 500 packed, wall-to-wall black people listening to the music. Now I'm saying like, well, what happened to all of these people? What are they doing now? You, know, is, you And know, what's the answer? The, well, you know, I think that they became, a lot of people thought that the Civil Rights Movement was over and they became part of the system. You know, they, they a lot of people, uh, you know, you had the rise of, you know McDonald's and McDonald's music. You had the rise of of pop music. I mean, because you have to remember, uh, in 1965, which is the marking point of what what I would call your your before 1965 you had your your pre beatle period In 1965 and on was your post beatle beetle period and uh, you know jazz was was pretty you, know, you could you could get a hefty advance i mean it was played in the, on the radio stations mm-hmm. and when when pop music really came into its own, you know, it went up and jazz went down, and, and ever it's been going down and down and down. And then whatever uh, kinds of, of pop music came in, you know, hip hop, uh, it just took over the the ears of of a, of a lot of black people who might whose parents might have listened to jazz, but the children don't. No, so it's not passed on. I mean, my father listened, to, and my father had been listening to to uh pop music maybe i would have never heard duke ellington but he came home and played
0: duke ellington every day and as a kid you guys shared that music together yeah you enjoyed it he enjoyed it and Uh it was a common experience to to... and
1: now the parents a lot of the young parents you know they they listen to hip-hop they don't listen to jazz they don't know what jazz is it's like a whole so 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 you're losing that link so that's part of the reason you you don't have a black audience And uh, the outreach now with computers is like, how do you separate someone from their computer screen to say, come out the house? Do anything. And do anything. So so it's difficult. But I still think when people hear the music, whether it's Anthony Braxton Mm -hmm. or Leo Smith or Dada Leo Smith or Tim Byrne, they dig the music. Yeah. You know people people dig the music and 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 they like the music. It's not the, it's not the fault of the music. It's not something well the music is too heavy. No, the music is not too heavy. Right. The music is not too deep. People aren't that, you know, is it was all the the the, the rewiring it's, of it's, our brains. Yeah, it's how not, willing it, you are yeah, to turn on yeah, your receptors don't blame and receive it. Yeah, 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 it's just that they have to hear it. Yeah. You know they have to hear it and uh there's never been a problem with you know with... You know, when you listen to Sun Ra's orchestra, everybody loves that band. Yeah, you know, and and so, well, 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 what happened? You know, they they should have been making tons of money. They should have been
0: um... well. You know, one thing I'm curious about is I was listening to uh, the last recorded Coltrane concert, the Olatunji concert, it's right? Like the Olatunji cultural center right and i feel like even back uh uh, university of the streets was like a cultural center right you know and and there was a lot of there it seemed like there was this really intrinsic relationship between this is where we make our music but it also has this aspect that is a cultural center where we're bringing people in and and really strengthening our community with this music and has some of that gotten lost
1: Oh yeah, I mean you know the, the the whole thing with with young people now is that they don't know the history isn't taught because again the music's been taken out of the schools, where instead of having an a, an artist and resident in every public school, mm. uh, they should have four artists and they should have a a, a, a literature person, a poet a dancer, a visual artist and a musician and every there are enough artists to go around where every public school could could have an artist in residence, either for monthly or for 6 months or for the whole year have the same artist where the history of the music is taught where they're given an option of of you know, well, okay, we have, you have hip hop and you have this, but check this out. You know, you know, check check whether it's uh, the uh, the the music, the Pygmy music. You know, where, where they're going, uh huh uh huh uh huh, and then Grandmaster Flash is going, uh huh uh huh. Uh-huh. You know, the same rhythm. And see, the root of rap is Pygmy music. You know, and then you can play the blues, you can play gospel, you can play, you know. But people have no idea that these musics exist because they're not taught. And nowadays, uh, if people aren't taught and guided, they will just follow the what we call the okey doke. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, which is uh, which is very hard not to follow if you don't resist it, because yeah. it, it
0: it's like it's like a it's it's a trap. For for young people. Well, you know. I mean, I think you know, just in my own experience, the the best music appeals, or or, or it, it it speaks to my intellect. It speaks to my heart first and foremost. It speaks to uh, to to me on many deep levels, levels that I need to to sort of. I can't just sit back and hope that it hits me without me doing something to to receive yeah. it. And and a lot of the stuff, you know, I hear a lot of stuff coming out of people's cars, you know, at a red light. Yeah, and it clearly does not do that it speaks to something <laughs> and it's coming out loud too <laughs> it's coming
1: out loud. <laughs> you know and it's like you know it's all about me 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 yeah. me 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 yeah. there's no universal theme there's nothing to give you something to really think about it's, right it's it's really just it's on a it's vibrating that no no not a very high level right so uh so there's you know so there's lots of reasons for that and and, but it can be brought back i think it
0: can you know you know i I don't think young people or people in general are any less in need of profound experiences oh yeah i think we're more in need of it than ever oh yes and i think there are people here yourself included uh who are are capable of of sharing that with people
1: oh yeah i I think you know we we should go out on a lecture circuit, just debate and talk with people and uh you know we you have you know people who are making billions of dollars they're buying basketball teams and baseball teams and 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 they're saying well you know and you and then you have the media saying that these people are geniuses right and um and they they may very well be a genius but uh what does that mean you know right you know because far as like you know it's all about money it's all about making money it's it's not really about
0: it's sad it's very shallow Yeah, it's, it's very, very shallow it's very you
1: know? i mean we could rip it apart yeah, and really get I, I, on it but i'm not going to go no, there no no
0: it's you know i i mean it's i mean it's yeah it's i don't want to sound you know i think a, a republican would say well it's a matter of of personal responsibility and i don't what I would say back to that is, okay, if it's a matter of personal responsibility, I will, with my own, from what I will do is make music and, and, and art that is meaningful and does, you know, I, I'm not a, a teacher and I'm not, you know, uh, uh, running programs for young people. But at the very least, I can uh, maintain a, a level of, of sensitivity yeah. and vulnerability and, and craftsmanship in what I do.
1: Well, you see, you know, we've become a society of watchers. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, and they spend most of their time watching other people do things and accomplish things. I mean, the first thing you know, they tell you when you go to school. Is when I was in school, you know, they tell you that George Washington never told a lie, right? <laughs> and that Columbus is a hero. And yes. the other things they tell you is that you need to buy this kind of makeup to look beautiful, you need to put this clothes on to look beautiful. You they don't ever tell you that uh, you don't need to buy anything, you don't need to put on anything, You're, you are already beautiful, all you need to do is develop what's inside you, and they don't tell you that. And so people have this this massive insecurity, yeah. You know, and 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 it's really programmed through the media, you know, to to make people insecure it so they can them. yeah, so they can buy these crutches that they really don't need. It's
0: you know, yeah, and you know? and yeah, and when you see that, it's and you can, it, it's an act of personal liberation. Yeah, yeah. To, because you
1: you you can really say well, I don't need this. I, I you know, I'm okay on my own. You know I I don't need, you know, because the bars are filled with young people. You know, if you do a concert and, and your concert space is in the middle of the block and you got bars to the left and those bars are packed, packed. with people, all spending the time. money
0: over you know hand over fist. Yeah. yeah, You know,
1: and because because people are depressed, people are in this thing, and and it's like yeah. it's, it's just. There's something going on. There's, you know, as, uh, you know there's something brewing, and, um, and and just people just don't know how to how to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, so they they, they people have always medicated to uh to kind of uh, relieve tension. Yeah. You know, and.
0: Uh, well. Let's keep making music. Yeah. William, I really appreciate you coming by, man. Okay. Thank you. It's been nice talking. Thank you. Okay. All right, that was my conversation with William Parker from August 2013. He's the best. Here's my conversation with William Parker from September 2015. Uh, so, I mean, the last time that you and I spoke, actually... Was at
1: your house. Was that my house. On
0: Grand Street. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I guess maybe a good place to start would be... Going back to that to that street corner on LaGuardia in 1975, when when you first encountered Don on a personal level,
1: well, uh, I think it was it was warm. It was it was like because uh, May 25th I got married. 24th I got married. 75. 75. And I remember I invited Don to the wedding. So uh this was this was maybe in uh it could have been in May.
0: Yeah, so maybe like early. Yeah, because spring I think in New it York. was
1: May because uh it could have been early May, early part of the month because I remember when I first met him I said, Yeah, I'm I'm getting married on the twenty fifth, twenty fourth, so when you will we'll get it this, right for the wife. When you get it there's put that on the twenty fourth. Okay. You got it. Thank you. <laughs> Although that's pretty funny. We might have to leave it.
0: In. No, no, no. Okay, we won't, we won't. Okay.
1: So um and it 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 was a it was a warm day and as as I tell the younger musicians now, you know, the difference between the seventies and now is that in the seventies you could have a job at the coffee shop and you could work from 8 o'clock till noon mm. and then at noon you were free. You were free until the next time at 8 o'clock the next morning. You could practice all day. You could go home and stare at the ceiling if you liked. You could you could write a novel. Yeah. You could just sit in the park and talk to people or go to the coffee shop. You had hours of contemplation time. You didn't have to run from one job to the next, and then to the next, and then to the next, and uh, and you weren't sharing a room with three or four people mm-hmm. in the room. It was it was really a, a nice time. And you were living
0: down here in the East Village? Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: yeah. I actually hadn't moved yet. I was, I was going to move. Uh, I was living in the Bronx still, but we were, we were moving to... Three fourteen East Sixth Street between First and Second, Mm -hmm. and uh, but I was down here a lot because I was always playing music, always going from one spot to another. Uh, At the time, I was playing with uh, was Rashid Ali, uh, Sonny Murray, uh, Billy
0: Bang, Dewey Johnson. uh, I mean, Rashid and Sonny, then these guys were already really, really well respected, well known. Well,
1: they were were known within the circles of
0: the music, particularly Rashid, who played with uh,
1: Coltrane. And so I used to play with Rashid, just to give you a background, Rashid at CBGB's, Hmm. which was at that time called Hilly's on the Bowery. Mm -hmm. Because Hilly, I guess, was the owner, and it was Hilly's Jazz Club on the Bowery. And we would play there on Tuesday. Uh, we had a group with Jimmy Vass. And Studio We was one of the real foundation places where many of the musicians would come all day and play and interact. You know, Carl Berger, I met down there, mm. Daniel Carter, mm. Hakeem Jami, uh, Earl Cross, Archie Shep, Dave Burrell. And also at the time, uh, Sam Rivers was still existing because in 75. It was two years before the bicentennial, which was 1977. So you had what you we were in the middle of the loft scene where musicians would be holding concerts in the, a loft mm-hmm. or a storefront because it was $200 for a storefront at the time. So we were a lot of musicians around. Uh, there was a place on 11th Street called The Firehouse run by uh, Alan Glover, known as Juice at the Juice. time. And uh, there you know, I met Billy Higgins. I met um, began playing with Billy Higgins, Clifford Jordan, uh, Andrew Hill. So a lot of people were uh, were coming through. and so it could have been one of those days where I was just walking around just contemplating mm-hmm. and And at the time, I was also formulating my ideas on spirituality, on energy, on the aesthetics of why we play music. And uh, working on this piece called "The Document Humanum." So I had that with me, and I think I stopped and was reading on the corner, and Don came up playing his Dusangoni. Mm. or maybe it was simultaneously, and then he was playing his Dusangoni, and I was just reading, you know about you know, uh, the aesthetics of music. Poetry that you had written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called The document of Madame. It's, it's you, you can get it out there, mm-hmm. here and there, and so afterwards, uh, he invited me to. He was living at the Chelsea Hotel.
0: Well, when he when he approached you, you knew who it was, right? Oh what? yeah, so of course. And was that was that a thrill to to interact with him immediately like that?
1: Uh, Of course, you know, it was very, like, exciting, because I'd seen Don play with Ornette, Mm -hmm. and uh, so it was like, wow, this is Don Cherry, you know, listen to all the records. So instead of getting nervous or um, apprehensive, I just said you know I I jumped into it and went and, and began to go to a higher level of communication with him which he really enjoyed yeah, sure yeah and uh so we began talking about the Dalai Lama about spirituality about all kinds of things on our walk up from LaGuardia place up to the Chelsea hotel and um then we got there we had some apple juice and some bread and some food up there mm. And then he asked me like, "Well, what do you do?" I said, "Well, I'm 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 a bass player." And then he said, well, yeah, I'm playing at the Five Spot." And um I think it was later on that month. So a mm-hmm. lot of things were happening in May, and he invited me to cuz I you no know, no I was living on 6th Street when we when he played, so I must could have been the beginning of June. And uh so he said, "Come down and um and play with me." and I said great now he didn't know how I played he didn't know uh, the only thing he says oh I know you can play don't 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 worry about anything yeah. just come you know and, and when I spoke to him when he called me up uh he said know, just come on Tuesday which was the first day of the gig and I came down and he showed me uh some bass lines which he played on the on his little piano uh, brown rice, and then uh, and he said, "Just, just listen. Just listen, because we're gonna go everywhere," and which we did. How uh, big
0: was the group that he invited you to play with?
1: Well, we had Ed Blackwell, we had Billy Higgins, we had Frank Lowe, Hakeem Jamie was also playing bass and tuba, we had Sailing Fung was playing an instrument called a chin, uh-huh. Sandy Bull was playing oud. Oh wow. So it was a um, it was a big group, and uh, and I had been playing with Frank Lowe already, and it's actually it's it's materializes. There's tapes of this concert now, which I have somewhere. Someone gave me a CD of it. So we began, and it was he had a big uh, tapestry, colorful tapestry in the back, and it was it was quite an experience. It was quite an experience. uh, really just maybe set the foundation for some future ideas mm-hmm. about... Because what he would do is string compositions with improvisation in between together. Mm-hmm. And he could go from a, a Stevie Wonder tune to an Ornette Coleman tune to a Monk
0: tune. Within the same
1: composition? Well, sometimes it was in the yeah. same composition. And then there was he was also doing stuff because it was a brown rice period. Mm. So we were doing stuff like uh, Buddhist chants, you know, mm. om, shanti, shanti, om. And so we had this mantra kind of thing going and the drones going and uh it was it was uh really really the music was really popping, and I think we we had different drummers different nights we had uh uh Billy Higgins with some nights, Blackwell with some nights, and I think roger blank was there
0: was that was that part of the concept or was that just a logistic thing
1: that, that was just a logistic thing i think yeah you know because I think one night we had two drummers even playing huh. together. And uh you know, and I had known you know, I said I knew Billy Higgins from from two years ago in 74. and I knew Frank Frank Lowe who I'd already recorded with mm-hmm. and uh, but it was just a, a very, very hip period. Mm-hmm. Uh I remember Cecil Taylor came down and I had played with Cecil Taylor in nineteen seventy four at Carnegie Hall with oh, a big wow. band. Wow wow wow. And I met Cecil in seventy three. So I remember Cecil came down and and um, so it was it was a very, very very uh, magical uh, music we made.
0: Yeah, I, I was thinking about it as I walked over here. You know, jazz has has always been a a, a very living tradition. Uh, It's something that you interact with and and it's always evolving and and the individual is always evolving. Um, To interact with Don like that, someone who had shaped your perception of music and of the world, what was that experience like?
1: Well, it just showed me that you have to believe in your intuition. And this is what I learned every time I met, uh, when I met Cecil Taylor, when I met Mingus, when I met anybody I played with or just talked to for a day is that I was on the right track mm. and it wasn't so much it was that yes, they were older musicians and I was influenced by them, but also that I was part of their tribe. Mm. I was one of them, mm. you know, uh, even though I was, um, younger, but I wasn't, it, it, it was wasn't like a revelation. Like I can do this instead of that. Is that the this was what I was doing, mm-hmm. and that's why I fit in well with certain musicians because I was doing that already. Right. Yeah. You know, and and, um, and I saw. I was just happy that I. I mean, seemed like everybody I met during that period, and even to this day, is the right person to meet. Yeah. Has always been the right person to meet and I would always meet them at the right time, and they'd always have the right message for me and the right confirmation for for what I was doing and what I was thinking. And, you know, later on, I went out, and I really developed on my own independently. And then when I came back in, in, in you know, in the 90s and saw Rashid Ali, mm. I mean, he was like, wow, you know, you're doing it, you know. Although when I, I first came was starting with them. It's not like I wasn't doing it, but then I was really doing it because I had 10 years of, of experience and 12 years, 13, 14 years of, of playing every night. Mm. I mean, the, the 11 years I spent with Cecil Taylor uh, was a great, great, great training because I remember I played at Cecil at Lush Life once and Don Cherry was in the audience. Mm.
0: <laughs> this is before after? Afterwards, yeah.
1: way after, you know, in, in the 80s. And he says, ah... Yeah, y'all were playing, <laughs> yeah. you know, he said, y'all were playing silver. He said something like... What did he say? He said you were playing silver lightning. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> it just means that we, we were doing a certain kind of energy. And and then he said, I wish I could play that free. Huh. This is what Don Cherry said about Cecil Taylor. I wish I could play that free. What do you think he meant by that? It meant that, you know, he was still playing tunes. He was still... Uh, you know it, it, he just felt that his music had some spurts of freedom but Cecil's music was one big spurt yeah and it was one big lightning bolt one big one big burst of sound and uh and energy and melody and harmony and rhythm and so uh you know I mean he said the same if it is an interview on the internet by Archie Shepp where he says you know um uh, he said, well, I'm I playing at this club, and uh, I thought that we were avant-garde, you know, and I mm-hmm. thought we were really doing it. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the band that opened up for us uh, was a guy named Albert Island. It oh, never, never heard Albert, he said. <laughs> and then I heard this sound, and I said, whoa, what was that? And then he said, Now I thought we were
0: free, but Albert was free. yeah. Well, you know, I think like a lot of people, um, at least my age, you know, my introduction to Don Cherry was as a participant in these really seminal recordings, uh, you know, by Ornette, by Eiler. Yep. Um, and, you know, so when I first started putting all this music together uh, to, to understand it, I thought, well, this guy must have been like this really, you know, uh, solid side man. Like he must have really just been the kind of guy that gets up and can really play the parts. But as soon as you get to hear the music, that's not what the power of his playing was
1: no you see don could play with anybody yeah you know he could go to turkey and play with the turkish musicians go to africa go to egypt go to india he could play with lou reed he could Mm -hmm. play with muddy waters and then you could say oh wow that's don yeah he would never lose his identity no matter what kind of music he was playing but he could always feel comfortable in playing any kind of music which gave, which gave, which gave one the idea is that, and sometimes in in playing, you know, what they call uh, avant-garde music in Europe, they've got some rules of well, you don't use, you know, um, these are silent rules mm-hmm. or just style stylistic rules. You don't use re- repetitive melodies. A rhythm. Mm-hmm. You don't use melodies, mm-hmm. or oh, the melody's always broken up where well, you can't tell it's there. Yeah, and there's certain things you don't do. But in Don's world, it was that everything is music. You know, the melody, the rhythm, uh, the folk, the uh, electronics, because he's done stuff with electronics sure. music. So he he had no fear of any kind of music. Which shows you that it's not the you know it's not the style of music it is, and it's not the content of the music; it's the soul and spirit of the music that mm-hmm. makes it work. Mm-hmm. And John Coltrane showed us that with yeah. him playing, you know, my favorite things or or whatever little theme he used, and he would make a symphony out of it. Mm-hmm. So there was so Don was fearless. Don was fearless.
0: Uh, was he? I mean, I, 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 and the reason I question that is. Uh, do, do you do you ever get the feeling that he had some self consciousness around that? I don't you know, I, I obviously you can't speak for him but
1: Well, no, I mean I think that, that Don was open to all kinds of music. Yeah. And there was some particular music that he fit in just perfectly with. Mm-hmm. When he was working with the South African musicians, uh, you know, Johnny Johnny, uh John Chikai, Dudu Pakwana, uh those guys he worked he worked very well with the Indian musicians. He worked very well with Coltrane, he worked very well with Albert Isler, mm. he worked very well with Archie Shep. Mm-hmm. I mean if you just name all the situations he was in, you say, Yeah, Don worked very well with all those yeah. situations. There wasn't any situation where you say, well, well I could see him saying, Well, I don't like this music. He worked well with Sonny Rollins. Right. So he so he, he was one of these guys that if you could do it. And it really felt natural to you, then do it. I mean, some people. Uh, there's no crime to say, well, you know, I, I'm a blues player, and I just play the blues. That's that. There's no, there's no shame in that game, and there's no, uh, there's nothing to feel bad about. It and say, well, I play blues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like a bluebird is blue, right? And, 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 and you know, and a cardinal is red. Yeah. Now, if you're a cardinal and you want to be a peacock, you've got problems. <laughs> So right. you, you have to accept that 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 whatever whatever gift you've been given and what, and what you can do is a gift. You know, if you're able to play uh I was studying with with Richard Davis, the bass. You know, he wanted us to play all kinds of music cuz he could do that. You can play everything from classical music to folk to jazz to pop music. Mm-hmm. But what where? Wobbleware was just interested in I study with Wobbleware with just being Wobbleware.
0: Yeah, well, and there's, you know, a couple ways that people you could talk about that. You could say, "Well, this guy over here has really got a lot of technical facility. He understands these things. He can play a blues, he can play a a rock." But I don't think that's what made Don Cherry so um sort of malleable, but also uh open.
1: No, he he had a great musical memory. Yeah. He he remembered like they always said he knew more of Ornette's music than Ornette. <laughs> and once right. he learned a tune, he could remember it. Yeah. So he had a great musical memory and he was just whether uh com- I don't know how comfortable he was, but he did things and he was and he was ready to make music with anyone who was ready to make music. Mm-hmm. And um and if you look at, if you begin to unfold his discography and listen to his music, you'll see the wide, wide range of music he did. Mm. And he wasn't like a, a astronomical recorder, uh, rec- you know. He didn't do tons and tons and right. tons of CDs. But you know, he's, he he played with George Russell, and uh, you know, of course, Ornette Coleman. He played with Don Bias, which was not recorded. You know, mm. in Paris, he played with a lot of people. He played with Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm. He played with a lot of different people, and um, do you
0: think people there? And Frank Zappa played with him. He said that famously, right? Well, I don't what, know. They, no, then he then Zappa or Bob Dylan and Don Cherry played together.
1: They, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the thing is that, well, well I just, well, I, I, I state that because, uh, well, well you know, Don, you know, Sonny Rollins played with the Rolling Stones. I said, no, 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 no. no. The Rolling Stones. <laughs> played with Sonny Rollins. So, yeah, you know, it's like, this is not every, you know, right. You know, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who is the elder in this? You know, <laughs> we, we can't, like, under, undermine our own position in the music. We can't be, like, marginalized. Right, right. Like, it's a great thing for them to play with for him to play with them, it was a great thing for them to play with Absolutely.
0: as well. When, when you first encountered, when you guys first encountered each other in the mid-'70s, uh, I mean, who who was he to the musical community in New York? Was he very open? Was he available to people? Was he sort of in his own little scene?
1: Well, he, he, he was a father figure because, you know, Frank Lowe played with him, and Frank would always talk about Don. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was down at the artist's house, uh, was seventy-seven, one thirty-one Green Street, which was, uh, mm. I'm sorry, seventy-seven Green Street was Rashid Ali's place. I wow. almost flipped it over. Uh, Ali's Alley. Yeah, and yeah. one thirty-one Prince Street was uh, Ornette's place, mm-hmm. and and you know, and Don was down there. It was sort of like a hub uh, for musicians to to go to concerts. And uh, so Don was one of the father figures because you 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 I mean you saw Ornette walk on the street and Ornette, you'd go to Ornette's concerts and Ornette would let you in for free, Mm -hmm. and and uh, or you could always stop by Ornette's house at one thirty one Prince Street any time of the day and night and he'd let Mm. you in. Yeah, you know, people think it's like a miraculous. Oh, I went to Arnett Coleman's house on you know in the thirties, but he was always like that. Yeah. it's not like an, a you know a miraculous thing. He was always open to the public. I don't know if he's got a composition called "Open to the Public," but he was always his his name and number was always in the white pages. Right, it always was. He was always open like that. So Don was 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 a guy you could hang out with. You know, I mean, he'd come. You know, you'd be. A, Walking, and then here comes Don on some roller skate, <laughs> you know on a roller skate with a hat with a propeller on top, or, yeah, you know, so he was always colorful and always you know setting new standards of dress, new standards of joy because he was always happy, he was always um you know in the now with the music, with the spirit, and uh always aware of everything and and he really. Could hear. He really had big, big, big ears. Yeah, big ears. So he, so he could hear when things were on and things were off, and so it, it made you become aware of, of being like playing music, free, particularly what they call free music, was not a just thing about just doing whatever you wanted to do. Mm. Is that you could play free music and be very off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you if you're could, not
0: serving the music,
1: the... yeah, you could really be playing the wrong thing. And, um, and then you also could be playing the right thing and you could think it's wrong. So you have to really know kind of where you are with the music and, and, and how it's shaping up. And and that comes through really uh, fine listening mm. and, and really developing your ear. You train yourself. Uh, as Cecil Taylor would say, you train yourself how to respond to sound. You train yourself how to respond to music. When when someone plays a a jagged phrase, what do you do? When someone's playing a slow melody, what do you do? Do you join them? Do you play a counter melody? Do you play that melody in unison? Do you play a fast rhythm against them, Mm -hmm. against that person? So you have all of these choices and all of these kind of... Uh, possibilities and the more you listen and the more you develop the more you develop a pedagogy you you'll see that there's a whole world of of ideas and and possibilities the thing is to not lock them in and know that every possibility today if you on Monday if you play that same possibility on Tuesday it might not work Hmm. so each day you have to find new possibilities because the old ones just don't work and every day you need a new possibility to be able to um explore and and sort of open the door to the music you know mm-hmm. it's like, almost like every day there's a different combination to open that that magic door yeah and you have and you've got
0: to quickly analyze it and find it well and that's Bam. and that's where that's that's where that, that's where the music lives
1: yeah that's it's... where the music lives and that's where the masters know how to find it quick and really get to a point where they never even leave the room mm-hmm. even though they you know they, they're they there 24-7 and that's what you're really trying to get to and uh, I mean the only problem with anything of course is the, is the music business is not is is kind of is not very 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 hard mm-hmm. and uh, if it's not commercial music it's it's you get a really raw deal but You bypass that by saying it's not trying to walk up the ladder of the music business, it's trying to get to the people you're supposed to get to. And I discovered this a few months ago is that it's almost like each musician is assigned a certain number of people they're supposed to reach. Mm. And it may be just 50 for a lifetime or 40 or 10 or m- more for others and your job is to reach these people and save their lives through your music and you have your whole life to do it and that's your assignment mm. it's not about becoming famous it's not about going around the world and playing all these big festivals it's about finding these people who are who are looking for you and you're looking for them in a yeah. way and 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 you don't really notice these things, you know. Every once in a while, you're riding the subway, and someone will tap you on your shoulder and say, "Oh, aren't you William Parker?" And I say, "Yeah, man. When I was in college, I man, y'all came to my y'all uh-huh. came to my my school. I was like eight, 19 years old, man. That music changed my life, mm. you know.
0: And so uh, there's well, I think you know that's what it's about. There's a lot to be said for. Individuality and the responsibility of the individual, and I mean someone like Don Cherry, like you said, whether it's the way that he dressed with the propeller on his head, or the way he would solo, or uh, there there is sort of an inherent outrageousness to it, and it's it's like a splash of color wherever it appears. Right. Um, but it seems like there's a responsibility for the people that have the natural ability to be outrageous, to, to con- be confident in themselves, to do something like that, there's a responsibility as well.
1: To follow that tradition. Yeah. And that tradition is an individual tradition. It's not a, a locked-in, box-in tradition. It's, it changes with every individual who's born, who comes up and wants to play music. Mm-hmm. And, um, but Don was always able to recognize this in people, and recognize the masses, and like John Gilmore, and like Marshall Allen, when you, when you were young, he didn't treat you like, oh, you know, you're young, you have to learn something. He said, well, let me see what I can learn from you. I mean, when I, when I first met John Gilmore and I met Marshall up in up in the Bronx, you know, they, they said, well, yeah, sit down, this is William, blah 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 blah, blah you know, and mm. and they weren't like, you know, there was a humility. And and that's what Don had. Don had a great humility in him, and uh, so you were always able to listen and communicate with him, and he was you. Because because after that time in the seventies, I I just really didn't didn't play with Don. Why well, I, I spoke to him, I hung out with him because mm-hmm. he was here on the Lower East Side a, a, quite a bit. Yeah and um so it was a like, like I said he showed up it would show up at gigs once we were playing at the baby grand on 125th street and it was Roy Campbell and there's Don right there waiting for us mm-hmm. you know so so Don helped to uh, help us unload the drums and we
0: went into the gig wait wait he was he was helping you load and unload gear yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, that seems like that's not a very common thing for like an elder musician to come down Well, do. that's what he did. Yeah.
1: And I says, how did I know? We were playing at 125th Street at the Baby Grand. And he said, come and hear, to, I'm, I'm here to hear y'all. And he helped us unload, listened to every note of the gig and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he ever yeah. give you a hard time? No. <laughs> no. You know, all he said was, yeah, y'all, you know, he was happy. Yeah. Music, he loved Roy. Yeah? He, oh, yeah. And, and he loved Roy's playing, and he, and he would always say "right on" to Roy Campbell. That must have felt good. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. It, it, of course, it felt good.
0: Yeah, you
1: because know, because you know, music. You you can get a lot of musicians that are depressed because of the yeah. scene, because of whatever reason in their life, you know, rent, money, lack of recognition. So when one of the, the, the 20th century, 21st century masters comes and uh, congratulates you, you know, and, and, and hangs out with you and
0: helps you unload the gear mm. and load it back up in the van. Yeah. After H- the gig. Had you seen uh, that kind of behavior, that kind of warmth from a lot of older musicians, or was that pretty unique? Well, uh,
1: Everyone had a different f- form of, of of warmth. Yeah, you know, everybody had a different kind of idea of what they could do and 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 reaching out to people. Um, you know, when I was studying with Jimmy Garrison, I think I paid for one lesson, and the rest of the lessons he gave it to me for free.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and then we we supposed would be an hour, and then we we would hang out all day sometimes. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, Rashid Ali was the same way. You know, always you could ring his bell on Seventy Seven Green Street, go upstairs, hang out. You know, play with him down in the studio, uh, and he was always, come on, yeah. You know, always like like open. You know, Arnett Coleman the same way, and uh, a lot of musicians were very very warm. You know, yeah. uh, you know, Milford Graves. Very 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 warm person, uh, and open, you know, to 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 the community, open to giving, and um, there's a lot of hope in that. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of hope in yeah. that. I mean, people don't know that musicians are open like this because they think they're, you know, like a little standoffish, but they're not really. No, you know, I think that I mean some are, but uh, uh, many are open to uh, to help people and and to give to people and to um, Really, um, reach out and uh, sort of you know give you give give one what one needs in, in at a particular time in one's development. We mm-hmm. always need something at some some point along the line um, of our life, and then uh, and then Don would play the pocket trumpet. I mean, I, I have a pocket I, I'm I, I have a pocket trumpet mm-hmm. and. Um, because that trumpet was my first instrument. I played mm. the trumpet when I was like nine ten years old, and uh so I always loved the trumpet and uh but i never since then I never got a regular trumpet, I always liked the pocket yeah. trumpet yeah, yeah. because of uh because of Don and uh, also because it was a little different. I always liked to do things a little different mm-hmm. and also the Dusangoni that I play you know that day i was introduced to 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 the, to the Dusangoni through don and now i've got like many Dusangonis around here yeah. and i've played and recorded on those and and again that's another thing i got from don yeah you know influenced to play uh and of course i went back to mali where it came from and 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 uh i didn't go physically go there but i went back to see where it was coming from and the possibilities there but that's what he also did so uh I remember when he got his case he had a nice leather case for his Deuce and Goni. And uh a guy named uh Jose on uh, Beekman Street was a case maker. He made base cases and he made um he made Don's leather case for his Deuce and Goni. That was that was really nice. Yeah. And uh so so it was like every day was 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 pure you know, enlightenment and happiness. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even today, it is. You know, you just have to stay focused and and just stay open and constantly um, apply yourself to uh, to whatever you want to do. And- yeah.
0: So, so, at, so there was that brief period where it sounds like you had a lot of contact with Don, or I don't know how brief, but he eventually went back to Europe or went and and did you have much contact with him after that well,
1: you know he went he was living in Long Island City for a while, I think, and he uh not not, not sure and, and uh and then he would work periodically at the Vanguard mm-hmm. with Bob Stewart and was working with Carlos Ward. And uh, I remember when he did a record with Billy Bang and Wilbur Morris. And uh, was Steve McCall on that record, or was it Blackwell? I'm not sure, but uh, he did a record with Billy Bang. So Don was, and also uh, with Charles Brekeen. it was a tenor player I played with, with the melodic artet, that was in the seventies. So so I'm keep keep more things are coming out that Don did yeah. with people I knew. And uh he just kept working. I'm not sure. Um I think he, he moved back to Europe at a point and um and stayed there. Um I'm not sure about this because there's possibility he was going back and forth. But whenever he was in I mean, the last time I saw Don was on Avenue B and uh right down here on 6th street hmm. where it was a chinese restaurant and uh, i was in a chinese restaurant and then i saw don crossing the street and uh he looked like an old chinese guy hmm. you know because he was going through some changes and I, didn't, I at first i didn't recognize it as don and then i said oh that's don so i run out and talk to don and he was the same way was he know? was he sick at that point I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And he had to have some dental problems. Uh uh-huh. uh but he uh cuz he had a good period with New and Old Dreams. Yeah. And which is another thing he did. So 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 the more you keep coming think about it the more things you see that he that he he would keep being creative no matter uh what kind of trials and tribulations he was going through? Yeah, and you know when his, at the end when his chops went down, you know he played the piano, he played his flute, he played the deuce and go, and he didn't play that much trumpet.
0: And that was a pretty conscious decision because of the
1: well, yeah, I think he you know he could only play you know his, his trumpet chops were yeah were were weren't what they you know weren't what they used to be. Yeah, so he didn't he didn't play play that much trumpet. You know, Dizzy Gillespie had the same problem but you know but he played sparingly but when he played you know you knew it was Don mm-hmm. you know, it was Don and uh uh yeah and I think we were in uh Switzerland I was in Switzerland with Dennis Charles and uh who else was I there with no Dennis Charles Matthew Ship was there and uh someone said that Don had passed away mm. And uh, so we were all really, really, really sad when we heard that news. Uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah, because that was a, you know, because he was like 57. I mean, he didn't make it. he wasn't old. No, he didn't make it to 60. But, you know, the the bebop life, you know, coming out of the 50s and the bebop life can be very, very, very hard on musicians. Yeah. And, uh, but he did a lot while he was here. He did a Mm -hmm. lot while he was here. And he uh, and he and I guess used his time as much as he could, as he could use it, and and uh, he really got a lot done, probably more than a lot of people got done. Yeah. Who lived longer? So we were really really sad to to see him go, and because uh, at some point I I wanted to try to hook back up with him in some Mm. kind of capacity, either him playing with us uh, in some capacity uh, or me playing with him because I was also thinking about Billy Higgins and maybe doing uh, some kind of trio Mm. with with me, him, and Billy Higgins.
0: Had you ever discussed that with him?
1: No, no, no. But, um, and Billy was in California and he was having problems with his liver Mm. You know, so uh, in fact, when we did our my record O'Neill's Porch, that was was thinking of Billy Higgins in there, but uh, you know he he couldn't come to back to the states. I mean, back to the East Coast because he was going to have another liver transplant, mm-hmm. and so Jaime Drake did the record with us, which was uh, you know the start of a of a whole another relationship yeah. that that flourishes today. So, uh, so you know, life has its ups and downs, but the ups are very beautiful. They are. Uh, I
0: really appreciate you talking, William. This is this is nice. Thank you. Thank you.